Matthew 5. The famous Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. I haven't done this with you in a long time. I tell you to turn in your Bible. You might have come here as a visitor today and not have a Bible, but that's okay. You can't say, well, I don't have to turn in my Bible because I don't have one, because we put Bibles. So you, you, st- you can turn in your Bible. So what would I do with this? I mean, well, mine's upside down and backwards. I can't use this. Oh, you got to flip it over. That's tech support, all right, for the codex. So where would I find Matthew in my Bible, right? Well, first of all, you want to make sure you're looking at it with the printing from um, uh, left to right, uh, and it says Holy Bible or whatever your Bible says on the front, and have the spine on the left side if you have an English Bible. If you're looking at a Hebrew Bible, um, you don't need this instruction. So what you do to find the New Testament, and the first book in the New Testament is Matthew, is that you go to about, I want to say, the 20% left mark. Five percent, 20%, like four-fifths of the way through the Bible, you're now in the New Testament. And I am, I, I accidentally turned to Matthew 11 by going and thinking, where is about 20%, between a quarter and 20% left? And some of you are like, math? I didn't come to church to do math. Well, just think four-fifths, like, like almost to the end of the Bible. And you're going to find yourself in the New Testament. And if you turn to the index, you, you blew it. You went too far. And you have to back up and go back. to. But, the, but what I'm saying is the New Testament isn't huge. Matthew is the first of the four Gospels in, I believe, history and the way the Bible is printed. And that's a controversial statement, and I stand by it. But we're in Matthew chapter 5. So you're like, okay, I found Matthew, but where would, what's this chapter 5 business? They always talk about chapters and verses, Philippians 4, verse 4. How do I know that? It's a street address. What you have is the right street. You're at Math, well, you're the right town. You're at Matthew. And then you're going to go to the street. And the street is the chapter. We're in chapter 5. My Bible that I opened just a minute ago says, Matthew 27, and I've got these little things up here, and I'm going to flip back over to Matthew chapter 5, and then I'm going to find verse 1, which is the first part of Matthew 5. Now, I see that hand back there that you need more tech support. I'm just kidding. Nobody raised their hand. Uh, (laughs) But if you did, we would talk about it later. And I would make sure that if you wanted, you wouldn't leave here with any confusion about this. And I'm really not teasing. There are people There are people that'll still, when I say Matthew, they'll look up at the table of contents and spend time trying to find where in my Bible would Matthew be. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is how the the New Testament begins. Turn to the New Testament and find it there in the front. That's that's really fast. And and Americans in the time in which we live need this instruction. Even here, we need this instruction. Don't be ashamed of it, but don't fail to get it either. Don't, Don't not learn. That's some good English right there. Don't not learn. In Matthew chapter 5, we read, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall, sorry, the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you 
when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May God add his reading to the blessing, add his blessing to the reading of his word in Matthew 5. And may we notice that the topic of reward in heaven is introduced in the Beatitudes, which would be really emphasized in Matthew chapter 6. Your reward in heaven is great. Maybe you know this about me. I will translate those blesseds, makarios in Greek, ashrei in the Hebrew. I'll translate those the same way, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, when these statements are made. And I will translate them as the subjective experience of blessing, which those words mean, and not the reason for that subjective experience in God's blessing. In other words, we have words for blessing, and that's not these words. Makarios means happy. Makarios means what you get because of the blessing. And it does us absolutely no good to deny that in some sort of esoteric paganism. Happiness has fallen on sad times for many believers these days. Either we don't have it because we don't know where to get it, or we mistakenly believe that we're not supposed to have it in the first place. As though somehow the idea of pleasure or enjoyment is inherently sinful. I'm not going to preach a message today of hedonism or Christian hedonism? Not really. I'm not going to say you need to satisfy all your pleasures and all your lusts. I'm not going to say that. But I'm not going to lie about what the text says either and say you're supposed to have these spiritual non-elative blessings that don't amount to happiness in your experience. Don't let the pop evangelical dumb kick you out of the historic Christian faith we have bled the Colosseum ground red for the happiness that's in us, for the joy set before us. We have something that cannot be touched by human temporal circumstances because we have joy inexpressible and full of glory. And that is a synonym for happiness. The truth is that the universal search for happiness is evidence for the biblical worldview. Everybody wants it. Nobody seems to have, well, a few of us have it, but everybody's after it. Billion dollar industries to try to get people something that approaches a satisfaction for this urge to, 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 to pleasure, to, to happiness. We want it because the desire is inherent in our design and our makeup. We are made for happiness. God put the hunger for a relationship with himself in us but we foolishly try to satisfy it with anything but God. This is the biblical theology of happiness. It's like the biblical theology of fear first hour. It's not that there's two kinds of fear. It's that there's one fear and you give it to God or, you, or you're an idolater. There's one happiness. I get it from him or I'm not going to have it. And that's the nature of the human race. And it's chasing after vanity. We don't have this elusive bliss largely because we are fallen people living in a fallen and cursed world. And what does that language fallen mean? Think about that. I talk about our fallenness all the time. Fallen, that means that there's a change in vertical position, physics people. Fallen, I fell. 
means there's a reference point that I was somewhere with and now I'm not. And I'm lower than. And what is that reference point? From what have we fallen? From God's righteousness, from God's character, from an acceptable status with him as created in the fall. We've fallen short. We've fallen away. We've fallen down. He's up there. Holy, we've fallen. That's our status except for what God does in Christ when we first trust in him. We've fallen short. He's up there in righteousness. We're down here in our sin and our wretchedness. And I will spend the rest of the time today elaborating on our wretchedness. (laughs) And that'll make everybody happy. I won't. But there is a problem in sin and fallenness with the concept of happiness. And what popular evangelicalism has done the last 20 years, they've tried to disconnect uh, believers from the word happy by saying that's what the world offers. And what we have in Christ is holiness or something. And to segregate these two concepts, which we've never done in the history of the Christian faith. Remember, they're translating in the Latin, they're translating makarios, blessed in your English, they're translating as happy or happiness or bliss in your Latin. There's a reason, they're right to do it. The Latin isn't always better than the English, but sometimes it is. We're not wrong to want contentment and satisfaction in life. That's not the problem. And I understand the effort of preachers to try to get you to stop trying to get your happiness out of the world. But the problem isn't the desire for happiness. The problem is where we're trying to satisfy it. That's the issue. Jesus has an answer for you in Matthew chapter 5. The quest for bliss is not just a product of our fallen sinful nature. We want happiness because we're made for happiness. The problem is that we're seeking contentment everywhere but in God's holiness. We're looking for joy in all the wrong places. Some have noted this misdirection in the human pursuit of happiness and said, we've got it. The problem is the desire for happiness itself. You shouldn't be looking for that. It's not about you being happy. Well, okay, nothing in a a universe where God is and we are, are because he made us, nothing in that kind of universe is about us. It's about him. But he made you with this inherent desire and this need for satisfaction. And you're never going to scratch that itch without him, without it being him, a relationship with him. You're made for him. The problem is the desire for happiness itself says the misdirected and the misguided. The proposed solution is not Christian. Mirthless, joyless Christianity is not Christianity. Those Puritans, as we think of them, Half the people or more think Puritans were people with big brimmed hats and belt buckles on their hats. I'm sorry, those were not Puritans. Those were separatists. And we love them. And they were an offshoot of the Puritan movement. But the Puritans were not a bunch of self-righteous Agnes Kravitz, you know, looking at your house across the street through through the binoculars. They weren't a bunch of self-righteous people just looking for who they could put in the stocks next Monday. But that's how they're portrayed. What they were, they were reformed, strongly clutching to their Geneva Bibles, reading them with abandon, believing the words they read there. And they were very, it turns out, grace-oriented. They had vast wine cellars. Oh, no, I can't talk about that. The Jonathan Edwards winery exists because of the Puritans and their understanding of the scriptures. 
And I don't recommend anyone drink anything from the Jonathan Edwards winery. I'm just saying they weren't legalists. And they were in line with the historic Christian faith through the Reformation. And uh, I have a lot that I disagree with them about. But, um, but, but they're, they're our brothers in Christ, and they weren't legalists. And so this idea of this dour, Bible thumper, miserable, that's not the biblical description of someone that knows God. That's not the description of God. He's not up there with a perpetual frown and a knitted brow looking for someone to throw a, a lightning bolt at. That's Zeus. That's not God. That's not the creator of the universe. That's not the one that sent a son for you. So joyless, mirthless Christianity, that's not Christianity. And it never has been. And Preston City Bible Church, you know that. Christianity is not clowning around either. Telling us not to seek happiness recasts Christianity as some sort of stoic asceticism. And it plays right into Satan's deception. How? Satan has the narrative that God doesn't want us to be content or satisfied. That's, that's Satan's story. God doesn't want you to have the goods. God's holding back. He's a holder backer. He made you with this desire for satisfaction, but you could never satisfy it unless you disobey him. That's Satan's lie. That's Genesis 3. That's the diabolical implication in the day that you, God knows that when you eat from the tree, you'll be like him knowing good and evil. God's holding back something from you. Happiness in this case. God, the righteous and generous lover, is slandered by the slanderer. That's what the devil means, slanderer, the adversary with his mouth. The slanderer says that our God who is righteous and generous as a lover is petty. He's God the petty withholder or God the unkind craven miser. That's not the Bible, and that's not anything to rejoice in. If that was the God we served, we should be dour. We should be angry, knitted brow people that don't have any of the attitude described in the Beatitudes. Just to be clear, the problem is not the pursuit of happiness. It is the pursuit of happiness in some other source than a relationship with God. We're looking for the right thing, but in the wrong place. That's often the case with the human race. And when you see these tendencies in the broken, fallen, sinful human heart, and you see this is one of these common threads we have with people, it's a great apologetic it gives you a reason, as Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, for the hope, for the joy that's in you. Well, you better have that hope. You better have that joy so that you can have a reason to share it. We do ourselves and the gospel no good if we don't understand the biblical pursuit of happiness. As an example of the tendency in our culture to look for it in the wrong place, Americans, let's be Americans now. We are. You know what I'm going to talk about if I talk about American culture, right? But get it, think about it in your mind. What would we describe if we're talking about American culture? And everybody could be thinking something different. You could say, well, what would the mainstream media think of it? And what would the 1619 Project say about it? And I'm more, I'm more of a fan of the 1620 Project when the pilgrims landed. Now I'm going to talk about the Declaration of Independence. We look for happiness somewhere besides God. Watch what we said. In the American Declaration, our primary foundational document as a nation, it says many things that reveal a Judeo-Christian worldview, that we are created in God's image, and so we have dignity as individual persons. And we said this as a charter notion. It's a huge thing that, that establishes the value of the human being. 
See, what, what the French did a little while later has nothing in common with this because they completely con- disconnected humanity from the creator, so there's no value in the human. So just madame la guillotine, chop, 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 it's just people as we're declaring the rights of man. See, you got to have God to have morality. You have to have God to have value in humans. And we said that in our declaration. And uh, to that extent, again, I'll tell you I'm a patriot. Of all concepts therein in the declaration, the idea of accountability to the creator as his creatures is the perhaps most biblical idea of all the things that, that um, Jefferson and Franklin and Adams said in the declaration. <clears throat> but in that declaration, Thomas Jefferson took John Locke's ideas of natural human rights under what Locke described as life, liberty, and the pursuit of property, and he changed it to a really important and interesting change of words. And by the way, human rights would be, uh, under God, life, liberty, and property. But we changed it for the Declaration of Independence so that it wasn't like a direct quote of Locke. And what did we say? We said, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And those that had read Locke caught it. Well, we're not just trying to go make money here and have stuff. We want the better things, the broader things. But notice what happens. Do Americans tend to think that there is happiness in the amassing of property? Yeah, why, why do they do that? Because of the Stars and Stripes? Because of uh, Omaha Beach? Because of, because of the French monolith out in the bay there? The Madame Liberty? Is that, is that why we think properties? Ha- no, it's because we're human. Those those Americans, they're greedy. Uh, put any nationality, any ethnic group, everybody's craving and greedy because we're all sinners and we're trying to find satisfaction. So we think it's going to be amassing things to ourselves. I have an illustration that's very close to me and my son's at the, very, at the moment involving Nerf guns, but I won't share it with you. Does the rewording mean, when, when they reworded it to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, does that mean that property is happiness? It, it may not have meant that. They might, might have meant to, I, I'll be sympathetic. They meant to broaden it out to say not just property, but property and all the things that make for happiness. But see, if we do this, if that's where happiness is in the material world, in the material things, we've lost Philippians 4.4 and you've lost your joy and you won't have it. So a lot of people think that stuff is, the where, is where it's at and it's not true. So I read to you the Beatitudes. What would the devil's Beatitudes be like in America right now? What would it be like if the devil said, happy are you for these reasons? These are the places you can find happiness. This is a fun thing. This little segment is brought to you by C.S. Lewis um, in this tradition of the screw tape letters. But what would his Beatitudes sound like? Where Where would people be looking for happiness if it wasn't in a walk by the Spirit with God the Father in Christ? Where would they find happiness? Happy are those who find romantic affection. Oh, so good. Oh. It is. It's one of the best things. Better than a blizzard. I mean the Dairy Queen blizzard. Happy are those who find romantic affection and make it their whole reason for existence. Ever know anybody like that? Yeah, every 20-year-old. I'm sorry, every, every 15-year-old. They're like, the girl, the ladies are like, men are like that. Some of them are. Happier those who find romantic affection. 
that good thing, oh, that's it. This is life. This is it. For they shall have constant emotional stimulation and never get bored of that feeling of fleeting romantic exhilaration. I told you these are the devil's beatitudes. And those of you that know and have been through this know that that's a lie. If it's real, then it'll forever be powerful enough to keep me emotionally stimulated. That ain't how it works. It's more like a fire, and you need kindling to start the fire, but then there's the real fire after the initial kindling, right? That's how this works, and it takes work to keep the fire going. So I have a lot of ways to use that illustration. Satan might say, happy are those who have children as their life's all-consuming and defining passion. See how you take a good thing like marriage or romantic love and you turn it into an idol? You take children, turn them into an idol. Happy are those who make their kids their lives. For they will fill the emptiness of their lives with their children and build their satisfaction in life out of their children's successes, affection, or destruction, depending on the selfish and sinful bent of that parent. I don't want to see them succeed, but it really gives me a pump when I see them fail. Have you ever known parents like that? I have. Or they've grown up, but they're staying here to serve me because after all, it's me. And, I, and it's about me. And since it's all about me, they exist to please me. Their successes are really me living my life through them. So I'm going to direct things to get my way out of their lives. Those kinds of horrible things that you see parents making mistakes and, and really ruining a, what should be a lifetime beautiful friendship. And it, it can't be because of these abuses. For those of you that have experienced something like that, I don't mean to talk into your situation if I am directly stepping on that situation. I just know it's very common for parents to get out of whack about their kids and, and off, their eyes off their savior and think that happiness is in children. Satan might say, happy are those who chase after their personal goals with singular focus, Napoleon Hill style. Singular focus, allowing nothing to distract them or deter them from their determined course. For they shall have the spoils of victory. And those spoils will perfectly deliver all the satisfaction and contentment they could imagine. See, that's, that's a lie. Once you climb up to the top of the heap, you realize you're still standing in trash. Right? That's how it is. And, but see, we don't know that until we get to the top. And once we're there... That's a very dark moment for a lot of people. Satan might say that happier all those who have expensive things, a big house, an expensive car, fancy clothes, for they shall have a lifestyle that makes them content, but they won't be content. And they'll still chase, once they have all the things, they'll still chase happiness and they still won't have it. I, I pray that you're having a moment of wisdom, young people, and you're learning from the description instead of having to live it and waste so much time as a young adult and then come back to yourself and say, yeah, it is about the word. It is about the Lord. I pray that you'll hear the lies that Satan is telling the world and that your culture, your generation is growing up with. Happy are those who have friends to spend time with. What's wrong with that? It's not God. Your happiness is in your friends. Happy are those who have friends to spend time with, for they shall have their time filled with interesting conversations and experiences, and this will be the fulfillment that they are craving. But it won't. If you're the kind of friend that needs the friend so that you feel complete or whole, 
then you're not a good friend. You're a draw on the other person's resources. I mean, there is a a give and take in relationships. I'm not saying that it's not a, a good thing and we lean on each other. I'm saying if you're the kind of person that friends are your life and you've replaced God with friends so that's an idolatry, now you're a poison as a friend and you shouldn't be that way. It wouldn't be good for them. Happy, <laughs> all right, this is mean. No, this one's not mean yet. This is, this is, we'll do an easy one. We can all beat up on, then we'll get mean. All right. Satan might say, happy are those who take care of themselves and look out for number one. I just got to take care of me. It's simple. It's just easy. Um, for they shall have what they want and that will satisfy them. Happy are those who play video games for their life's occupation. Now, let me tell you the background of that, beati- that, that false beatitude. Since I've been the pastor of Preston City Bible Church, the only place I've been a pastor, um, I have talked to young people uh, for more than 16 years now uh, about their aspirations, about their interests, about what they're into. The most tragic answer I ever got to uh, what's your life's most important influence, where it was supposed to be the Lord was, well, actually, the Lord is one of my influences. Shocking thing to hear after years of ministry with a young man. Um, but what, what I usually hear, have heard as a common thing, which didn't happen when I was a kid. They had video games, but they didn't have like now. What I, what I most commonly hear from boys around ages 12 to 18, when I ask, what would you like to do with your life? And they mean, you mean for a job? Yeah. It's overwhelming how they want to be playing video games for their work. Now, they'll say something like, I want to design video games. Have you ever designed anything? Usually they haven't, but they like to play them. And it's the only thing in their limited world they can imagine being satisfactory in life because it's so overwhelming in its visual and audio stimulation. And what that's done in their brain has become such a fixation. And it's been so easy for mom and dad to just, they're good. They don't break anything. They, they throw their controller once in a while, but they, they, they kind of just, they, they obey enough that, that our life is more peaceable. And so the kid gets completely consumed with this dopamine addiction, and it's the only thing you can imagine worth living for. That's why he says it, because it's so good. But he really can't appreciate the beach. An apple has nothing for him, right? He, he can't have a beautiful sunny day and a walk with his family. No, that's not, that's not exciting and stimulating for me. And so what we who know would say is that kid is robbed. He's been completely robbed of life, of the enjoyment of the good things in life. And maybe he'll learn. Maybe he won't. At least he's docile and seems content so that we can get about our adult lives and not, work, not bother with him. Happy are those who play video games for the life's, life's occupation, for they shall have constant visual and audio stimulation. And that is far better than feeling real life in the cold, harsh, real world. I wish that if you're like that, if you're like, I just don't like normal life. I like to play. I like to be in screens. I like to be in that world, that ready player one sort of uh, construct that if I could just live there, I would. If you have been kidnapped by this, as many, many in our culture have, and some of you, I'm not looking at you. I'm not thinking of you, but if I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you. If you would just take it as an article of faith that there's nothing on TikTok for you. 
that your brain is better without it. If we could take his anarchical faith, we don't need the constant stimulation for a chuckle. If you just let it go and try to live without it, I think you'd be amazed. That's the power of camp. I don't think Christian retreat camp has ever been more powerful than it is right now because the alternative is such a huge differential. When, when the kids in the 80s went to camp, they didn't have their uh, Nintendo. They didn't have an arcade. They probably aren't eating pizza at camp, some camps maybe. They're out in the woods and they're doing stuff and they're not watching TV with their elbows digging into the shag carpet and the shag carpet digging into their elbows, right? And they're not watching afternoon reruns. They're out in the woods and they're playing. That was a huge differential for the, the kids in the 80s. Imagine the kids today where we say there's no electronics at camp. Is this Gilligan's Island? I I can't imagine life without it. On day three, it's the best week of their lives. It's amazing how that works. Now they're surrounded by other kids. We're catering to them. We're taking care of them. We're talking to them. It's all about preparing and equipping them. But the differential is huge. That's why camp is so effective today uh, as opposed to in the past, perhaps, if the camp is teaching the word, that is. Happy are those who live for the approval of other people for they shall matter. That's a lie that you have heard whispered in your ear. You haven't heard it, but it's been suggested to you, and you might have bitten on that one. If people think I matter, then I matter. So if they approve of my choices, and that's the, the whole peer pressure game, the whole, uh, a, a, a huge chunk of Proverbs chapter one is this ridiculous story of not joining in with criminals and lying in wait to, 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 uh, to fall upon innocent blood. It's this ridiculous illustration for a king to be telling his son. But the point is that it's peer pressure. You get around people with bad ideas, you start to operate under bad ideas. Why? Because you care what they think. If I say I'm not supposed to do that, they won't like that. I feel the weight of that, and I want to go along and have a good time. It's a bad time if you bring conflict. Oh, come on. Happy are you when you satisfy yourself with any of life's details or available distractions and not the love and grace of your creator would be a satanic beatitude. Rejoice greatly, for you will be free from the tyranny of his proffered happiness and the life-consuming focus on his pleasure. Yes, you will have wasted your life, but at least you didn't waste it on finding real significance in the eternal God with whom we must all ultimately deal. That's from, that's, I borrowed that from the way Screwtape writes. My purpose is to tell you the alternative to the Beatitudes today, to show you, to kind of dramatize it. Because where does real happiness come from? Don't give happiness to the world and say, well, that's Satan's thing. We have something other like holiness. The best happiness, the happiness that you're made for is the holiness of God. They go hand in hand. Bliss is with your creator. In Matthew chapter 5, we find ourselves looking at this kind of prelude portrait. This portrait of people that fit this coming kingdom in their character and their heart, and their attitude, and their desires. Under the stress of a world in which Satan just tempted the Lord to disobey his father. You have a picture of what it's like to live with a sinful nature in a fallen world with your heart completely 
on your Savior, on your Creator. That's the Beatitudes. That's why there's mourning. That's why there's the poor in spirit and so forth. Let's do it in English um, and, and walk through the translation and knock off for today. In the Greek text, it says, so when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up into the mountain. Into the mountain. We don't know where this mountain is specifically, what mountain it is. It's likely not. We're here from the Rockies. We think of mountains as Mount Washington. It's just a, a, it's a hill outside of, of whatever the town is. He's outside the city center. He's up on the hill somewhere in Galilee. It says Galilean ministry as we read in chapter four. So when he saw the crowds, he went up into the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now some want to draw significance to the mountain and Moses going up to the mountain to receive the law. There is an interesting parallel that Jesus is going to interpret the law that Moses got on the mountain. So that's an interesting parallel. It may be something that Matthew is drawing attention to. But after sitting down, his disciples came to him. So here's an interesting thing. All the way my Savior leads me, he's going out of town, up into the, the hill country, up into the hills, not the hill country, but up in the hills outside of town. Um, are you following him? You better believe whatever he's doing, I'm with him. I've left my nets. I've left my fish. I've left Zebedee, my dad. I'm going to follow him and hear what he has to say. And it's a good thing you do because he's about to give you the most important sermon ever taught. I didn't say preached, I said taught. And the reason I say that is because of verse two. He opened his mouth and taught them. He opened tostama autu, his mouth, and taught them. He didasko, that's the, the stock word in Greek for teaching. He taught them, and all the English translations say that, but we don't read it slow enough to think about it. We read fast and get all through it. I'm gonna get, them to, get to those beatitudes. Oh yeah, I remember that stuff. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them. He taught them. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, but he taught it. That's awesome. Because the proclamation of the message of Christ, which we call preaching, should arise out of the teaching of God's word. I believe absolutely. That's why I do what I do. I have never been a huge sermon uh, consumer I've never been a, 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 a very fond of the, the overt effort to say the same thing five times with five different stories so that it really hits me emotionally. And then we walk away as though we already knew what the passage meant. I've never appreciated that very much. I do some, but it's, it's, not, it's not my, I don't grow that way. Personally, I need to be taught the word. I need to think about what it means and I think about ways we might apply it and never assume, well, I just read it, I know what it means. What does he mean by this? And that's a a big challenge in the Sermon on the Mount. It's called interpretation and it's work that Americans just won't do. We want to apply it. We don't want to think about what it means. But in thinking about the words that Jesus says, that Matthew writes, thinking about what they mean, that's where the treasure is, that's where the growth is. Is And that's where you start to think about how you need to apply these things because you understand what Jesus is saying. And so now you understand what you're responsible for. Application is many. Interpretation is one. And so Jesus opened his mouth and he taught them. Happy, makarios. This word consistently sounds in the New Testament like the Proverbs, makarios. I don't know why everyone translated as Blessed. Blessing is generally the English rendering of Hebrew word that means to speak something, to offer a blessing. 
When dad says the blessing at the meal, there's a reason. It's a verbal act. Blessing is the reason you're happy. But it isn't the state of happiness that he's describing. It's the cause. And so for some reason, I suspect by an accident, we translated happy as blessed and said the effect and substituted the word, which is the effect, for its cause, the blessing of God. And I want to claim this back because we cannot give Satan that ground, that happiness is for Satan to, to distribute through the distractions of sin in the world, and we'll be over here holy and, and, and smug. Please, if you're not happy, start thinking about why you're not happy. Well, happiness means my personal subjective experience. You are a personal being, which means that you are the subject of your experience. That's, that's the nature of being a person. Now, just because I feel like something's true doesn't make it true. I'm not talking about subjective truth. I'm talking about the truth of your subjective experience. You are actually experiencing life as you are. If you're not happy, it's not because you're supposed to be uh, miserable in your life because God loves misery. If you're not happy, it's because there's a, 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 a nutritional deficit, deficit somehow in your, in your spiritual diet. Now, some of you are, uh, by nature, um, Eeyore-type characters. You are never happier than when you're the most miserable. And uh, you know that deep down inside, but nobody's allowed to see it. Eeyore never shows you that little side smile that this is really bad and I like that. But that's what's going on inside Eeyore. He likes to wallow in the misery of it all. Right? Some of you kind of are that way. Others of you are, what, like piglets or tiggers and you're just... You know, just glad to be here. Fresh as the fresh as the spring dawn, and everything's great. We we want to hang out with you. Second category more. I'm sorry, we do. You're you're more fun to be around, and we appreciate the ballast and the anchor to reality that Eeyore provides everybody. But but notice that what you're being invited to in the Beatitudes and in the Proverbs, with all the statements about uh, Ashrei, all the happy is the man, and check out Proverbs three, happy is the man with God's wisdom. They say blessed back there too. It's happy. You're being invited to experience God's bliss. You're being invited to share with God in his eternal blessedness and his eternal blissfulness and his eternal happiness. And that is a much better thing than you can get out of a package of jelly beans. And I mean, when I say jelly beans, I mean anything of the circumstances of life. That's great. Jelly beans are tasty, but it's not a basis for life. Happy are the poor in spirit. In a fallen world with sinful people that are struggling against their sin and against the devil who's deceived the nations, we have to be poor in spirit. We're not poor in spirit because everything's perfect and everything's great and it's good for Christians to walk around uh, as a bunch of Eeyores. We're poor in spirit because we recognize our fallenness and our brokenness and our need. Happy are those people in a fallen circumstance. We call this the platform of the king, but this is the offer of the kingdom among people that need to repent for the kingdoms at hand. And that's the essence of being poor in spirit. There is a certain humility about our moral value that has to be owned. And we all need to. I recently read something about repentance that suggested Christians are always repenting. It's really important. We're not always being born again. See, that's an interesting point. But we are always, when aware of our sin, rejecting of our sin, that's part of our sanctification as believers. It's really important to get this. We are poor in spirit in the sense 
that we are impoverished except for God's grace and mercy. And if you can say, I'm poor in spirit, you can be happy because of what's coming. The word hati, H-O-T-I. Everybody here can see O-T-I. See the O-T-I? But here's where you didn't learn your rough breathing mark because you haven't taken like lesson two of Greek one. This little mark right here, that's the, that's the um, looks like an apostrophe going the wrong way. That's the H in Greek. It's the rough breathing that says ha. So this word is not ati, that's hati. Just for fun. That's just some interesting trivia, I guess. But I'm translating it because. Because because is more explicit than four. And four is your English translation universally. The because is one of the two key uses, the causative hati and the content hati. And it's not a content, it's a cause. The cause of your happiness is your destiny. Paul rejoices in the Lord because of what's coming. And the writer of Hebrews says, we can endure what we're facing with, we can run the race with endurance because we're like Jesus looking away to him who endured the cross by despising the shame for the joy that's set before him. He's looking at what's coming. Christianity, listen, is lived up and out. We're not looking down at the Colosseum floor and my blood's draining out onto the sand. <laughs> As a martyr, we're not looking at that. We're Stephen in Acts 7. We're not looking at the stones as they're coming in. We're looking up and we see at the right hand of God, heaven opened and Jesus standing in honor. He's seated generally, but he's standing in Acts 7 to receive Stephen. We are happy because of our destiny. And if you don't have that sense of eternal destiny, you're not going to enjoy this this happiness that God has for you. It takes faith. It takes revelation. Faith in that revelation. God has to tell you what's coming. The kingdom of, of heaven is not here, but it's coming. And it belongs to you, poor in spirit. So you have a lot to be happy about. You have a lot to rejoice in. Happy are those who mourn. The word for mourning, pentheo, it's a verb. Used here as a, as a, as a substantive participle. Those who are mourning. Again, hati, because they will be comforted. Why are we mourning if it's the kingdom? Well, it's not the kingdom yet. It's the kingdom being offered to them. That's Matthew chapters 1 through 12. He's offering the kingdom and saying, this is the, these are the people, fallen sinful people in the devil's world who are fit for the coming kingdom. They're mourning. About what? about their spiritual poverty, about the consequences of the fall on our lives. Mourning is what happens when someone dies and death is what happens because of sin. Happy are those who mourn because they will be parakaleo, they will be comforted. The Holy Spirit is said in the upper room discourse to be our comforter. Happy are the meek. Praus, praea or prow. Uh, this word prouse, translated meek in your King James Bible. Perfectly good translation. All of it is really. But what does meek mean? He never lifted weights in his life. He's meek. He had a low protein diet. He's pretty meek. It's not talking about that. He's talking about the gentleness that is not self-important this is what the BDAG lexicon says about this word meek or gentle. 
pertaining to not being overly impressed by a sense of self-importance. That's the sense that meek is offered. That, that it's not about me. It's the opposite. It's, it's humility. It's the opposite of arrogance, self-importance. They, they gloss gentle, humble, considerate, or meek. That's what we mean when we talk about the meek inheriting the earth. Happy are the meek because they'll inherit the earth. Now, we, we learned first hour what inheritance means in the Bible. It doesn't mean someone died. It can mean that, but that's not the primary meaning. What's inheritance mean? It means the transfer of property. It means the ownership of something. It means you have stock in the company. That's what it means. That, that's why you can't do Marxism and Christianity because Marxism denies the value of, in, of the, the ownership of private property and the Bible has God as the owner of all the property and he's perfectly righteous to own it. And by the way, he distributes it as he sees fit and he's righteous in that too. Well, I don't like how he distributed it. Right. That's rebellion. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. If you want the right thing, you'll get it. Pray in accordance with God's will. He's happy to answer those prayers. It's part of his design. If you pray what God wants, you're always going to get the right answer. You're always going to get a yes. Right? God, have your way. That's how Jesus is always teaching us to pray. That's how Paul prays. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Do you? Do we? Well, I'm sorry, pastor, and we'll close on this one. I'm not going to force you through all the Beatitudes, but guess what we're going to talk about next Sunday. All right. What's that? The re- yeah, there, yeah, thank you. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? This is a great place to leave us on. Pastor, that's appetite. You can't specify or prescribe an appetite. Hey, hunger for those lima beans. The truth of that suggestion is that spiritual appetite can be commanded. Peter says that we are commanded to long or desire the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby. You can command appetite. So let's do it. Let's get rid of the distractions and the sin which so easily entangles us and run the race that's set before us. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you want it? The righteousness of God, I mean, his perfect, infinite goodness. Do you want that? Do you want to be involved in that? Do you want to say only that? Do you want to live that? Do you hunger and thirst for it? Do you ask God for that? Do I, God, I want to walk according to your, not my self-righteousness, your perfect righteousness. This is Philippians 2, 12 and 13, working out your salvation. See, when you first trusted in Jesus without any righteousness of your own, God applied or imputed his righteousness to you at the very moment of faith in Christ. That's the biblical doctrine of justification. It's not your righteousness. It's God's righteousness. But we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, right? And God is working in us both to want to do what pleases God. That's his righteousness. If we walk in the light of perfect, infinite righteousness, as God himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. Do we not understand that we're saved by grace through faith, imputed with God's righteousness, and then being sanctified more and more to be like him in righteousness? Do we hunger and thirst for this? 
See, we're scared to talk about righteousness as Christians because we're, we're scared of being accused of being self-righteous. But listen, my self-righteousness is not God's righteousness. It's not the same. We're not talking about I'm goody-goody. We're talking about what is God like? What does he want? Do I want that? Isn't that magnificent? Now, here's the thing. Here's a promise in verse 6. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What's the promise? They will be cortazo. They will be filled. You can, you can have that appetite satisfied. And so here's the prayer. Here's the gospel. Maybe you want a break. Ooh, I want a lunch break. Maybe you want a break from the strain of sin in your life and you just want to get off that and you figure out how to be saved from that. That's the gospel. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. He paid your sin debt. And if he gives you his life, then in the power of his spirit, you can walk worthy of, of, of his righteous calling. Absolutely. Jesus saves us from our sin, including the power of our sin nature in our lives. You don't have to walk according to your sin nature, but only in Christ, only in the power of the Holy Spirit is that true. If you want to do it on your own, Take a cue from C.S. Lewis. Do your best. Hey, go, go keep the Ten Commandments. Good luck. I'll see you in a little while. If you really try hard, you're going to look like a train wreck in about a week because you're going to be a fail. If you're really diligent and committed to it, you're going to be a mess because you're going to fail because Jesus alone can do something about your sin. However, however, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're like, I don't really know about this hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's, that seems like a foreign idea. I'm not, I don't really know. Do I hunger and thirst after righteousness? Is that my daily appetite? Is that who I am truly? That that's what I want? God's righteousness in my life, in my words, in my experience, in my representation, in my com communication, in my association. Is that what I want? Maybe it's time to ask him, Father, I need this appetite. I want to be described here. I want to be this happy person that is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I want to not miss out on the filling that you're proposing. Take it. Own it. Ask God for it. You'll be asking him in accordance with his revealed will. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. This morning we close with eternal life. We've just mentioned it in the gospel. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. What you need to do about that is trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The reason we need a Savior is because we're sinners and we're broken and we're arrogant and self-righteous. And I'll prove it. Everybody thinks they're a good person. And nobody but Jesus is a good person. Everybody has lied and stolen and been selfish and self-centered. And that was just this week. We need a Savior because we're sinners. And what we need to do is stop the thought that I'm good enough in myself and recognize my need and my sin and change our thinking from our self-importance and self-righteousness to our need of a Savior and put our faith wholly in Jesus Christ. There is nothing you can do to be saved except receive the saving work that Jesus did on your behalf. That is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. He did the work. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Father, we thank you for eternal life, for the privilege we have to celebrate these things, to sing your praises, to bring our petitions and our thanksgiving. Father, we do want to mention those in our church family who are sick, who are struggling, who would be here with us today but can't because they're recovering. Be with them, strengthen them, encourage them. And those that are spiritually sick, that are hurting, that are um, mourning, that are poor in spirit, 
For whatever reason, Father, make good on your promise. Let them know your happiness as they rely on you. Help us all know the happiness of God, which is your eternal bliss and our joy as we keep our hope fixed entirely on Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.